with your regular host Joel and Mike, and we have a special guest today, somebody I'm very excited to speak with uh, for the first time, and I think this is going to be the first time a lot of people are hearing him in a podcast setting. This is no less a figure than Nigel T. Carlsbad, that is his uh, pseudonym that he blogs under at carlsbad1819.blogspot.com, I think it's blogspot. .wordpress.com. Sorry. We're off to a good start here. (laughs) Um, But Joel will link that in the description. And uh, so Carlsbad is a figure who has uh, sort of been peripherally associated with the neo-reactionary sphere in a way sort of not unlike Chris Bond when he was reactionary future and a very respected figure basically a uh, an expert on legitimist and counter-revolutionary thought, especially in French and uh, the French and German world of the 19th century. And uh, we're going to be speaking to him today about a particular figure. This is Carlsbad's wheelhouse. This is, uh, this is his guy. This is Carl Ludwig von Haller, who is the foremost proponent of patrimonialism in the 19th century. And I think that Haller is going to be a figure that, that is going to have to be reckoned with by the, uh, the dissident right in the same way that Juvenel is now has been uh, revived or brought uh, into prominence in our circles. Haller has a lot to contribute in some some ways is is doing some of the similar things to Juvenel, but uh, obviously he is a counter-revolutionary, not a liberal like Juvenel, so in some ways he's even more interesting. I'll, I'll just kind of set it up very quickly before I, I hand it over to Carlsbad. Haller, well, I'll say this. When I first read Robert Filmer who is a, a figure from a, a, about a century before Haller. When I first read Robert Filmer, it was a revelation because, you know, you think you, you hear about these uh, counter-revolutionary figures, these reactionary figures, and the ideas that they're, you know, the way they're painted in liberal circles is as being kind of brain dead, you know, just repeating scripture ad uh, infinitum and, you know, with without with, without even really like adding any interesting arguments uh, into the mix. But reading Filmer, I was just like – it was just a breath of fresh air. It was just like common sense from start to finish. And reading Haller uh, for the first time here has been very much like that as well. There's so much common sense in what he's saying. It just makes so much more sense. Uh, It's able to frame the way that states work and legitimacy operates and just just the way that governance – uh, works f- from a historical perspective as well as a, a rational perspective. It's just there's so much in here I think that uh, is is worthwhile. And I would characterize um, just for the, the the audience before we actually go into it in depth. I guess I would characterize patrimonialism in a nutshell as there is only private law. Uh, there is no public, only private, which obviously has um, implications for you know like I said uh, the the ideas that have become current in our circles about the public-private distinction being fake. So um, that's just a bit of a setup here. I will hand it over to Carlsbad. Welcome to Imperium Cast, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Haller? Sure. I mean, he was born in 1768 in the city of Bern to Gottlieb Emanuel von Haller, who served as a counselor in the Grand Council of Bern, as well as a bailiff. His mother was a member of a hot bourgeois family, von Schuthes. The name itself is actually interesting because um, in Bern, the government was known by the title of uh, Schuthes und Tarat, um, 
der Stadt Bern, meaning literally the mayor and council of the city of Bern, which uh, Haller at one point, actually, he criticizes the use of the term republic, or Republica, public thing, because it erases the corporate rights of the free city in favor of an imaginary idea of a civil society. Interestingly enough, Bern, despite being an independent city-state since at least the 14th century, they did not call themselves a republic until 1716. Prior to that, the name was the city and community of Bern, like the like a, not a republic but a Bürgergemeinde, like a, a civic community. And the actual locus of sovereignty in a traditional republic is the corporation itself and the corporation as assembled in a council. It's not the territory. The territory has nothing to do with it. The territory is a possession of the corporation and the, as well as the subjects who live under its jurisdiction. But the actual locus of sovereignty is the corporation itself. When it goes extinct, so does the state. Either way, he is, he's a Bernese patrician. Uh, the name, the nobiliary particle fun in his name is not an actual title of nobility, by the way. Uh, sometime in the 1750s, the Council of Bern authorized its citizens to use the particle fun so as to, you know, impress foreign diplomats, but it never was a true title of nobility. In fact, Haller would argue that uh, nobility, proper, properly speaking, is antithetical to a republic. You know, a republic can a republics can have like distinctions between like you know, old citizens and new citizens. Those who have like a long history of service in their families, who have a certain like distinction of honor, primus inter pares, first among equals. But there can never be a true patriciate in republics. Either way, from a very early age, like at the age of sixteen, he starts volunteering in the Bernie State Chancellery. And he goes through a whole bunch of positions. His grandfather, his grandfather was the famous uh, polymath Albrecht von Haller, who made the various contributions to physiology and anatomy. His grandfather dies when he's young. He receives an, an inheritance. His father, Gottlieb Emanuel von Haller, also dies, I think, sometime in 1784. And Haller, despite being a minor, becomes the de facto guardian of uh, his... In 1786, his father died, so Haller would be 18. Uh, in fact, uh, the, his father's estate was given to a guardian, but uh, Haller ended up controlling it de facto. Like his father had like a vast library, which he donated to the city. Already, by the time Haller was like 17, 18, he was already like, he wasn't yet a counselor, but he did like spectate on council meetings. Like you can find letters that he writes to his grandfather about, for example, uh, you know, mercenary costs in Geneva, uh, the use of judicial torture and so forth. At the age of 20, he becomes a commission's schreiber, a commission's clerk where he is in, responsible for supervising judicial penalties in the criminal commission. At the time, there, were no, there was no like criminal code or no penal code. Like judges, basically, they gave penalties at their own discretion. He writes about this in his memoirs, about how this early experience of governing uh, led to his eventual antipathy towards this, uh, the mania fabricating codes, as he called it. 
uh, he went, he was raised a Protestant, of course. I mean, Bern was a Protestant state, you know, he was taught in the Heidelberg Catechism of Calvinism. But already even as a young man, he went to uh, Lucerne and Fribourg, these uh, Catholic cities where at the age of 14, he saw the the Friday fast in Catholicism for the first time. And he remembers being very captivated by it. He had no clue at the time that he would convert to Catholicism himself in 1820. That is exactly what happened. Either way, what happens is that, you know, in 1789, he's now 21. And of course, the French Revolution starts to emerge initially on a fairly moderate course, but very quickly radicalizing. And he says himself in his own words that in 1789, up until then, I had never crossed the borders of Switzerland, had never been to a university. I was completely unaware as to the existence and the goings on of the secret societies about the so-called enlightenment prevailing at the time, which was, which was trumpeted in all books. He does, however, at one point start reading CS and his essay on privileges, and he's captivated by what he calls his masculine prose, but is quickly disillusioned from it. He starts investing in a French annuity plan, but in 1790, when the French government, the, the National Convention or the National Assembly at the time, I think still, he, you know, they start nationalizing church properties as biens national, national goods. They start, you know, inflating the paper currency. He manages to sell it off in time before it collapses. Uh, he also recounts a very interesting anecdote. I'd like to quote it. This is around, again, late 1789. During the autumn vacation, I made a short trip on foot, mostly via Basel and Schaffhausen, to see my grandfather in Zurich. One night there at my maternal uncle's home, a good-natured good trader from Zurich, from a good family, spoke with such enthusiasm about the French Revolution, announcing that milk and honey would flow, even that we would return to the Golden Age. The guests listened to the prophecy with amazement, but without lending it firm faith. No one knew that instead of milk and honey, rivers of blood and tears would flow and almost all of Europe would be covered in burnt and slain corpses. Only incurable discord would be introduced and the whole of human society would be torn from its joints. Uh, if that's not poetry, I don't know what is. Uh, in 1790, he starts accumulating more posts. He becomes in charge of the state uh, grain chambers, which, you know, collect grain types from the peasants and redistribute as like a dole. He actually goes to Paris. In July 14th, 1790, he's at the Fête de la Fédération, where he witnesses the king not only celebrating the mass, but for the first time taking the oath to the constitution. And he notes at the time that how how uncomfortable this made them feel to notice like the principles of the old and the new side by side so starkly. Uh, you know, so in 1791, of course, Louis XVI makes the flight to Varennes. The Baron is about to host its 600 year jubilee in 1791, but the Daily Council decides to suspend it because it might provoke and exasperate hostile passions you know that, that sounds familiar doesn't it 
So they celebrated the, the private banquet. In 1792, things started getting very serious. The French, France and Austria are now at war. The September massacres in Paris break out. The Swiss guards get slaughtered. The territory of the Vaud, which is in western Switzerland in the French-speaking part known as Romandy, which Baron had conquered in 1536 during one of the Italian wars and administered as a bailiwick. Uh, there started being uh, anti-Bernese uprisings, which were provoked by the French. In fact, uh, the ultimately uh, Switzerland would be invaded by France in 1798, and this was done with the explicit collusion of many vaudois politicians like Peter Ox and Frédéric Le Harp, both whom were Freemasons, whom Haller, of course, uh, never forgave. Uh, so basically, the entire 1790s in Bernie's politics is just a constant struggle for for the not just Baron, but the Swiss Confederation as a whole to like, uh, you know, exercise its neutrality against an increasingly belligerent French state. And, you know, there's all sorts of diplomatic missions, which I, I'm, I will talk about in my commentary. So I'm going to be brief here. I will say, however, that Haller did at one point, he met with Napoleon himself in Lugano. This would have been in like 1797 as well as Talleyrand and, and Madame Dustal. So, you know, he, he had a, so, you know, by the time he was like 30 years old, he had already had like 14 years of political experience. You know, this man was a, he wasn't like just some like scribbler or philosopher, like everything he wrote later on was all on the, not just abstract philosophy, but all like uh, from his own like practical experience, his own blood and sweat. But, uh, yeah, in 1798, in March 1798, uh, he attempts to make one last uh, uh, compromise with the French authorities by penning a constitutional project for Baron. But this fails, and I think on March the 5th, 1798, Baron falls, and the Swiss Confederation is abolished in favor of the Helvetic Republic, a unitary Jacobin state. And it's at this point that Haller becomes a committed counter-revolutionary. He starts publishing the Helvetische Annalen, uh, the premier like anti-French, anti-revolutionary newspaper, which goes through 61 issues, but is eventually shut down and he's proscribed. So he ends up fleeing to the city of Rastatt, which I think was in Germany, I believe. Yeah, in the in Württemberg. From that point on, he ends up um, joining the uh, one of the Austrian armies with uh, Archduke Charles, the Duke of Teschen. This is around April or May of 1799. The army enters Switzerland through like the northeast through Schaffhausen. He joins them up there, and he becomes a Servant in the Austrian War Council, the Reichskriegs Kanzlei, Kanzlei, from 1799 to 1806. In the meantime, in 1803, the uh, Helvetic Republic starts to be um, eventually the more outright Jacobinical elements start to becoming moderated. Some semblance of cantonal sovereignty is restored, although still under French control. 
And in 1806, he leaves Vienna and returns to Bern, where he's hired as a professor of constitutional law at, at a Bernese academy. It, it, it did not yet become the University of Bern until 1834. At that point, it was only just a private academy. Either way, he returns, he becomes a professor, he marries a, a woman from a Bernese patrician lineage, Katharina von Wattenville, and he has three children who were born in the subsequent three years. And it's in 1806 that he starts uh, his restoration of political science. I mean, already there's letters to, to like his confidants where he already starts uh, charting out the initial ideas. His first major contribution would be the Uber die Notwendigkeit einer anderen Obersten Begründung des Allgemeinen Staatsrechts on the necessity of another supreme ground for general constitutional law. This was a lecture of about 75 pages long, which already the fundamentals of his patrimonial doctrine were already there. He would write two more subsequent essays in 1807. One is about the on natural superiority as the foundation of political authority, and the other one was the 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 uh, acquired rights of a prince deriving from his proprietary interest in land, his domains and regalia, as they're called. His first major uh, publication of his doctrine is, of course, the Handbuch der Allgemeinen Staatenkunde, the Handbook of General Politics in 1808 at 300 pages long, where basically this was already all of the core principles of what would become the restoration of political science were already there. In fact, uh, I'm uh, going to quote from a letter in uh, which he wrote to Jochen von Müller, who was the brother of a major Swiss historian Shortly after, he asked his advice on this book, the Handbook of 1808, and uh, here we have a few notes. I regret only not having indicated and developed three things. One, the sentence in page 61 that all so-called public officials are only private servants of the prince and only there for his own affairs, which is why he appoints them. The genesis and filiation of the new of the innumerable services and places that they all would make the subject of an extremely interesting treatise. Number two, the proof carried out that every person in his circle possesses and exercises the same rights as the prince. There is no one who, like the former, does not give laws about his own affairs, wage war, make peace and alliances, exercise jurisdiction, grant punishments, privileges and, and favors, etc. Only that the prince exercises them over several and larger objects and possesses more. But the weak cannot always exercise these rights due to lack of property. For example, the poor cannot keep many servants. So it is true that even according to my system and in reality, that princes and beggars have the same rights and the same duties over, over their own, that all difference consists only in the difference in fortune, and that the master who becomes sovereign through this perfect freedom, gains something for himself, but does not receive the slightest new right against his former subordinates. Number three, the merits of the new Roman law terminology and its opposition to the old one, which so precisely indicated the nature of the thing and the basis of the legal relationship. As a Swiss, finally, I believe that I've done my subject a great service 
by thoroughly rescuing the republics and their principles and putting them on an equal footing with monarchies. While the sophists otherwise either want to turn everything into monarchies or everything into republics. So uh, for Haller, his doctrine, there's several core aspects. Uh, one is the doctrine of natural superiority. Uh, in fact, one of his essay, one of his essays is literally called a law of nature that the strong must rule. And now a lot of people, when they read that, you know, they're going to go nuts. Oh, he's he's advocating the might makes right philosophy of Trasimachus and Calicles. That's terrible. But it's interesting to note in German, the words Macht and Gewalt, meaning literally power and violence, they do not have the same negative connotation that they do in English. They have a very neutral meaning. And in fact, it was perfectly normal well into the 17th century to use these terms in various charters as a statement of the supreme power of a territorial prince. For example, you'll find in 1470, there's a dictionary of a German law called the Deutsches Reichswörterbuch, which gives examples like in 1577, Heuer Landesfürstlicher Macht und Obrigkeit, which literally means high territorial lordly power and authority. Or you also have Königlichen Macht und Gewalt, you know, kingly power and force, literally. These were perfectly normal statements of authority. So the German term Macht is essentially the same as the Roman potestas. It refers to power in the sense of a a faculty or a disposition that confers an aptitude to a particular person. This power is an extension of one's own personal rights. And so thus in the proper meaning, when we say, when we talk about Macht or the right of the stronger, what we mean is that uh, the weak have a protector, a guardian in the strong. It's a, it's a relationship, not so much of a, like chattel slavery. It's a relationship of guardianship and tutelage, which in no way requires that the subject renounce his possessions. In fact, in German tribal law, you have the concept of Mund, like, you know, like in some of the, I think, charters of Charlemagne, you have the expression in Latin, Mundiburdium Regis, meaning effectively, you know, literally under the hand of the prince, sort of like the king's peace in Anglo-Saxon law. So natural superiority, as Haller says, the, now the first and most general need of men is to live, the second to be protected, the third to be instructed. The poor serves the one who provides him bread, the weak the one who guards him, and not the one who rushes to him with wise sayings. Above all, that power always rules whichever is most needed. Is there a difference between being able and being able to do, between fortune and its use? Far from the fact that everything belongs to the powerful, nothing belongs to him, but that what he owns as well as everyone else. Power and superiority are only relative concepts and come in infinite gradations such that the father commands his children, the master commands his servants, but the president may serve a higher master yet again. The commander rules over his brigade of troops, but he is himself subject to the orders of someone who is recruited and paid for these troops. The master of the house rules over his domestic servants, but the house stands on the ground of someone else 
several people depend on the landowner, but perhaps the landowner himself has received his land from a third party attached with certain obligations and servitudes. Strictly speaking, it is therefore not man who reigns over you, but the power that he has received, the force of nature that he can use for you or against you, but that he should only use for you. And if you examine things in an exact and philosophical way, you will see that God is and remains the one and only master, either as creator or as legislator and regulator of all power distributed among men. And so from that, we now get to the idea of what is sovereignty. And of course, this is one of the most abused words in the English language. I mean, for a long time, I used to hate that word. I still kind of do, actually, with its whole sovereignty is this kind of uh, abstract uh, power of like absolute legislation or even stupider in the Schmittian sense that a sovereign is he who uh, defines the sets the sets the exception defines a state of exception, which effectively turns the sovereignty into a kind of like a, it grounds it not on law and regularity, but on irregularity and exception. That's like just completely insane. I don't even know, like all these uh, Schmidt pilled people, they really, um, I don't know, it's some kind of a, it's a good meme, you know, but uh, as an actual idea, it's total. Yeah. Sovereignty. When Haller talks about sovereignty, he uses it synonymously with uh, the word independence. And the word independence, he also defines as the idea of perfect freedom or perfect liberty, that of being subject to no one but God. Now, this perfect freedom is not some kind of uh, power to legislate or an absolute judicial power or a power of decision or a power of territorial integrity. This kind of independence or sovereignty is an extension of one's own personal freedom. It's a combination of uh, personal power over one's domestic servants in conjunction with the acquired rights and possessions that allow one to demand various rents and services from people who live on the land. So like fundamentally, it's an extension both of a kind of um, direct power, power over those who are directly dependent on him, like his uh, crown vassals, his servants and so forth, as well as those more distant subjects who have a purely proprietary relationship, you know, like they can, he can demand, you know, various like rent types and so forth. So, as Haller says, sovereignty does not consist of either certain exclusive powers, either isolated or united, for there does not exist any right called sovereignty or majesty which cannot equally be exercised and which is not often exercised by individuals in a narrow circle, the legitimate exercise of which finds no other obstacles than the lack of opportunity and means. But according to reason as well as to history, Sovereignty consists solely in independence, in the good fortune, the highest fortune, in fact, the summa fortuna, to have no human superior above oneself. Independence, which happens always in addition and which consummates the state or the sovereign social relationship, does not change the goal of the private relationship. They are distinguished only from each other as what is large from what is small, of what is perfect from what is not of what is supported by itself, of what still needs support. 
It is even to be desired that this expression of civil society, which slipped from the language of the Romans onto ours, is soon banished entirely from science, for just as it was with its consequences, the source of innumerable errors, as was the first to confuse ideas and imperceptibly lead minds to consider all states, all social relations as corporations of citizens, or to give them this form, or to at least judge them according to this alleged model. He goes on. We see uh, independence, a better synonym for sovereignty, is a natural consequence of personal power. In fact, I should point out myself that uh, in German, the term sovereignty, souveraineté, doesn't even really enter the lexicon until around the 18th century. The original term in German is Landeshochheit, or in Latin, that would be superioritas territorialis, which uh, literally means like, you know, the one it's it's an expression of like highness or aboveness like it's it's an expression that the holder of territorial lordship possesses certain proprietary rights of jurisdiction and exploitation on the given land not that he has some kind of like a abstract supreme power conferred conferred by a commonwealth or that like he's he is the judge of all law or that he's like somehow exempt from natural law or that he can just uh legislate according to his own fancy or whatever. Even in the 15th century, in various uh, French uh, royal charters, for example, you see the term souverain is almost always prefixed with the uh, word seigneur. So like it's always, uh, it means effectively overlord, similar to the German Oberherr. So this is a kind of like a feudal relationship. It's not really anything that uh, we can talk about, like, you know, uh, uh, a rational state, you know, or anything like that. So Haller continues, the landowner therefore reigns naturally and by right over his family, over employees, officers and servants of all kinds, destined to serve his person, to govern his house, to cultivate his land, to administer his income, etc., Moreover, he reigns over farmers, peasants, and subjects to whom he has granted a part of his land, either for royalties in money or in kind or for certain specific works. He reigns over vassals and holders of fiefs when he abandoned the enjoyment of such property in exchange for their support and loyalty, on workers and mercenaries, on simple inhabitants who settle in his domains because they find there their means of existence on temporarily domiciled strangers, etc. All these people with their own retinue, that is to say with their families and their servants, who may, who may in turn have families and servants of their own, are in various capacities and in various degrees subject to the territorial lords. They depend on him either because they receive the maintenance and amenities of life, either because they're committed to his service by formal pacts, or because they are subordinate to those who have contracted with him. Or finally, quite simply, because they inhabit his lands where he is the strongest, the lord, the master, where they need peace and protection and cannot clash with his will without harming themselves. But after all, what is this authority and do domination? It is not an absolute and arbitrary right to rule over all things, but only a more elevated existence, a superiority of means to use a legitimate freedom based on the personal rights of the master. It is limited by them. 
ennobled and tempered by the law of charity, far from stealing freedom from subjects. It is basically only reciprocal assistance and exchange of blessings. And so from these foundations, there's he there's two kinds of states, monarchies and republics, depending on whether the person depending on whether the person with authority is either a, a natural person or a fictive person, a corporation. And monarchies, in turn, he divides them into three different kinds of exercising power, uh, which correspond to the three estates of the realm and the Indo-European three-class system. So you have those who work, those who fight, and those who preach. And these correspond effectively to the, the patrimonial state founded on territorial lordship, the military state or the empire, which is founded on the personal authority of a military captain to his troops. It's a Personenverband, or you might uh, also say uh, a, uh, a Männerbund, and the spiritual state founded on the doctrinal authority of a priest or other spiritual doctor. And these are, the, these are the three kinds of states. And from that point on, he starts uh, summarizing, you know, the various like rights of patrimonial princes, the rights and duties of military emperors, how a military empire by acquiring a fixed settlement becomes a patrimonial state. He talks about the what he calls the macrobiotics of states, i.e. the uh, the art of prolonging the life of states. And uh, that is pretty much it, uh, an overview. And all these details, of course, will be up in my commentary. I have a full chapter by chapter commentary. It's about all of it is around like uh, six, it's about like 94 chapters or something. There's a lot. It's it's long. So I, I've, I'm very thorough about this and you can read more about it hopefully on Wednesday. I'll try to get it out by then. To quote uh, Whack a Flocker, you went hard in the motherfucking paint there. But uh, it was really enjoyable. I um, only have a limited understanding of Hala, obviously, because like no one has really translated any of his work into English. So you're doing the Lord's work in, you know, producing this kind of content to make Hala available. And I know that uh, from our discussions before we started that hopefully in the coming years, uh, Imperium Press also has a role in bringing Hala into the English language. I guess what really struck me in the limited material that I could find on on Hala to kind of uh, prepare for this is this kind of distinction that he draws between uh, the so-called natural society and the so-called civil society based on his critique of Rousseau, where, and I guess also similarly, his critique of Hobbes, where in Rousseau, you have this notion of civil society as a version from a social contract that uplifts us out of a state of nature, so to speak. And this state of nature, obviously, in Hobbes is considered fundamentally in antisocial terms, where, you know, it's the war of all against all. And so sociality is kind of produced in the social contract and in the civil society. Whereas for Hala, there is no anti-social ground for civil society, but actually there is the natural society and civil society is this kind of artificial construction that in a sense perverts the natural society where the civil society is composed out of these abstract ideological constructs 
uh, that give themselves over to this kind of revolutionary, destructive political process, which all critics from the reactionary angle are kind of aware of. And I guess uh, this corner of the internet has been preaching and extolling for years now. I'd be keen to get your take on this uh, explication of this notion that you know, the natural society ultimately is built out of these individual obligations between men. So ultimately, someone else's authority over you isn't something in the patrimonial state that he's proposing, which is constructed out of some ideological justification, out of some appeal to the general will or some appeal to some abstract construct. But instead, it is literally this individual contract that you've entered into because you want access to something, you want protection, you want provision, you want land, you want some kind of uh, authorization or official title or what have you. And so, you know, you, you don't have a recourse to complain about authority or to feel yourself with the right to usurp it or undermine it because you freely entered into this contractual relationship because the superior party is giving you something that you want. And so you're actually quite pleased with the relationship. The entire body of political is composed out of these individuated relations, which have this kind of directness that kind of gets around this uh, ideological perversion that you see Christendom and ultimately the world has fallen into this revolutionary liberalism. So I'd be keen to get your take on this and also your just your take on the Roman law and its role in this, because this obviously is, you know, one of these central points of Halle, and you referenced it somewhat uh, in your introduction, where he talks about how in the early modern period, where you see the monarchs of Europe in the production of these absolutist monarchies, they start to assign the status of the public to their personal estates so as they can then you know basically borrow money uh, to finance their imperial designs and their and their war efforts based upon borrowing against the total value of the state that they preside over over the kind of public body at large as opposed to their personal estates which were incredibly limiting and so you see in this period this massive uptick in violence in you know Europe as these empires are now empowered with an increased capacity to finance war to start engaging in brutal actions against one another but then at the same time this isn't just the mere critique because at the same time by creating this notion of the public and justifying the kings become kind of quasi-emperors in, in the sense of the Roman Empire. And so then the people start to change their understanding of their relationship to sovereignty or their relationship uh, to the monarchy, where previously there's the contract between prince and subject. Now it's prince and citizen. And the citizenry feel themselves, well, if we're talking about the body politic and you're borrowing against the body politic and you're leveraging the nation in order to engage in warfare uh, and in to take on debts. And ultimately, we have a right to this, to a piece of this sovereignty. And these liberal ideas come in and they become rationalized in these terms. And the famous words of, I can't remember which Louis it was, uh, you know, I am the state, you know, ultimately, we the people. Although I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that's apocryphal. I don't I don't think he actually said it, Louis XIV. The point being, ultimately, yeah, yeah, yeah. how they're making, uh, yeah, you can jump in here anyway. I mean, okay, let me let me tackle this on. I mean, the idea, okay, so the idea of a commonwealth, like a respublica, it was already like used and like you can find it in like French discourse, like as early as like the 12th century, but it had like a very different meaning because, uh, or like bona publica, the summum bonum, the common good, the public good. It had a very different meaning because by using this term, people did not yet imply that this, impl that this uh, commonwealth necessarily implied a, uh, 
a common relation like between prince and subjects with, with no like difference in estates, no difference in classes, no difference in obligations. You can actually find uh, uh, French poets who use the idea of a commonwealth to argue against uh, against royal taxation, for example, on, on the basis that the king ought to live of his own domains. So like in many ways, uh, this was used as much to reinforce the patrimonial boundaries as much as to as much as to uh, dissolve them. It was only in about early modernity and about like when we start getting into the late 16th, early 17th century that this Roman law terminology, when it starts seeping out of like spe specialized legal literature, starts entering the chancelleries of of princes and like various like laws, edicts, ordinances, where it starts uh, uh, becoming more widespread and from that point on makes it into what we might call the the public sphere, you know, the Republic of Letters, the philosophes, and it becomes like the normative language of all politics. Uh, for Haller, the main point isn't, the, the, the main point about Haller is that uh, there is no state except the state of nature, that we have never left the state of nature. I mean, even from the subtitle of his book, it's Theorie des natürlichen Geselligen Zustandes der Chimera des künstlich Bürgerlichen entgegengesetzt. A theory of natural sociability against the chimera, the chimera of artificial civil society. His point is that the natural state is the only state. There could never possibly be any such other thing. So it's not even necessarily about contract. I mean, the origin of political authority is not contractual. The origin of political authority is from the uh, personal power and acquired territories of either a a natural person, a prince, or a, or a fictive person, a corporation. But from that point on, you know, when these uh, princes or corporations start expanding, when they start conquering other territories, when they start uh, acquiring other rights, they do so on an unequal basis. I mean, in the same in the same way that any other person, like let's say you own like various lands. I mean. Like, let's say you own a cottage somewhere, which is like your absolute freehold. You have like the full fee simple estate, full, full dominium, full ownership. You may at the, at the same time own a condominium, which is subject not to your own unrestricted personal authority, but to the decisions of a homeowners association. And so it's, it's the same with any natural prince. Like there's a there's an infinite variety of uh, social relations based on lordship and subservience that can be configured in all sorts of places, all sorts of ways. And uh, sovereigns, they do not uh, per se, like just create new ones out of thin air. They emerge as like more elevated, more perfected forms of already existing natural social relations. Uh, which is why, of course, Haller is very clear that uh, there is no point at which like people just like magically uh, were now in a in a in a social in a natural state before the existence of sovereignty and then suddenly we we delegate our powers and now we have so a sovereign state like the, there is no point at which this happens like the the development from a from a like let's say a pre-sovereign tribal community to a monarchy this happens entirely organically from the same processes of tribal society from the same relationships of like family and property like there is no like inflection point where you can say oh at, at this specific time 
uh, people give up their rights for more security or whatever. Like, no, like it's, 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 it's only a more, it's the, the monarchy is only a more perfect form of the patriarchal household. That, that's all there is to it. Uh, the patriarchal household can, and this is interesting, uh, Haller has a very pre-modern understanding of war. Uh, for him, like if you read like old scholastic philosophers like John of Lignano in the 14th century, they don't talk about war as something that happens only between states, like uh, duels and, and private blood feuds are as much wars as anything else. And in principle, any man, if he has the means through the natural law that allows you to repel invaders, can take the law in his own hands. He can, you know, wage war on his own personal enemies. This is this is a effective. This is a natural right. That is, the 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 development of a state does not abrogate this natural right, but rather what happens is that for most people. Exercising this right is very difficult because, first of all, once you do start engaging in war, you're quickly going to become entangled in all sorts of complicated feuds and alliances, and it's going to spiral out of hand. So, which is why it's not that people give up their right to self defense or give up their right to wage war, it's that they necessarily, out of their own personal weakness, choose instead to submit to the jurisdiction of a superior prince who because of his independence and freedom can do these things on their behalf without uh, running into the same pitfalls the same difficulties but fundamentally a duel or a blood feud between two men in a uh, like between two families is not radically different from a war between two princes I mean, obviously, the object is much greater and the, the means by which they have to wage that war are also much greater. But the fundamental relation is the same. And uh, this is one so much so, in fact, that Haller, unlike Hobbes and many others or even Filmer, he does in principle permit the right of resistance in certain cases. He says that, you know, most of the time, this is extraordinarily impractical, but we can't say as a matter of like abs that, that this is absolutely prohibited because there is no like civic community that necessarily like gives you that where you no one gives up their rights when when entering a state. And consequently, you can't say that a man can ever give up his right to self-defense, even against a king. He even like uh, there's a very like funny example he quotes, but from like uh, uh, sometime in the 1750s, uh, some merch, some like uh, merchant, I think from Marseille in France, uh, declared private war on the King of England, which uh, this is like in some book of anecdotes where it's collected now. Obviously, in the international law of the 1750s, this would simply be considered to be piracy. But he uses this example to say that uh, even, you know, with all these uh, civil societies, ma man's basic sense of honor and dignity means that fundamentally he can never like absolutely give up the right to defend himself, even if it means waging war against those stronger than him. So that's one interesting aspect. He He's very historically thorough. I mean, he he cites examples from like, Aragon, Hungary, Poland, Sweden, Denmark, like it's very fascinating.
That's and uh, yeah. Uh, Sorry, go on. No, go ahead. I'm, I'm done for now. I was just going to say that that's one part of him that I find really uh, fascinating, but also like very salutary because I think historicism is uh, an approach that uh, generally sort of um, you know matches up with kind of where we're coming from. But um, I th- the thing that I I got from reading Haller uh, is that he's actually interesting on many levels. Um, he's he's clearly not just doing a sort of post hoc, you know, rationalization of why we should all just go back to being Catholic, right? He's, he's, he's far more interesting than that. What he's doing here is he actually kind of like links up with quite a few different strains of thought that are, you know, common in our circles. Um, the, the idea of sovereignty as a kind of perfection of the patria potestas or the fatherly power of, of the patriarch um, that obviously links up very closely with Filmer, which is kind of why I brought Filmer in here at the beginning. Um, but it, it's – and he, he also comes into agreement with some other thinkers that are you know, non-Catholic um, and some that are, uh, particularly in his critique of terminology. This is one thing I found really interesting because um, what he's doing here – and I'm not sure um, if, if the audience uh, is aware of this, but – what Haller's doing is basically saying that, look, the fact that Roman law was kind of grafted on top of, um, you know, traditional, like, you know, Germ- Germanic law or, um, you know, uh, Gallic or, or French or like all these different, like, you know, um, localities, like law became something that was um, not, not so much localized, but at least the terminology itself was kind of forced onto something where it didn't really fit. And basically what Roman law did, and we should say here that the Roman law that um, the the proponents of the French Revolution um, referred to was kind of like this Frankenstein monster, weird, like not exactly Roman law. Or what it was is it is basically Roman law in a, in a time of decline where the empire had already um, come about. And this was sort of like this weird – hybrid between like monarchy and republicanism uh, but it was never called monarchy because of course you know the romans were like you know king phobic and all of that so you had this like terminology which was itself internally incoherent in the roman society grafted on top of a society that was not roman and in a language where uh, these categories didn't quite match up so what you have is um it embeds all this like terrible like democratic stuff in language uh that you start to think in these categories and the categories don't match up with the reality and then you get this situation where you get this you know uh it's it's like um you know writing a a check that you're trying to cash and the bank account is closed sort of thing and in this sense he really actually reminds me a lot of alistair mcintyre uh, another good Catholic thinker who was basically making the same critique in a more general sense on uh, the notion of value in, in his after virtue, where he's basically saying that when you get the language uh, that doesn't actually match up, like the categories don't match up with the reality, it just becomes impossible to think about these things and you get all these incoherent uh, results from it. And as well, I think uh, this critique of language you can see in a thinker like um, uh, Ge- Johann Georg Hamann. Um, also in the Reinhard, Reinhard Koselik. Yeah, so I mean, I think 
I think that Haller actually is sits very comfortably alongside some of these other thinkers and these other strains. Uh, and and in, in this way, the idea of categories following language, it actually makes Haller far more modern than he seems at first, right? Like the, the critique is a bit narrower than something like McIntyre or, or Haman, where Haman is basically like in his um, meta critique on the purism of reason, which is like a direct response to Kant. Uh, you know, he's basically saying to Kant, like, look, you, you, you took all of your categories from, from the Greek, right? Like, this is a particular uh, set of notions that came out of a particular place and a particular time, and then you tried to make, universalize it sort of thing. So anyway, Haman is um, Haman's doing something a bit more general, but what, what Haller is doing is something very similar to that in, uh, in the domain of, of specifically economics i would say but also in politics as well um so he sits very comfortably along some of the thinkers that that are are common to our circles um and as well as filmer right like the idea of um, the household as a political model and patrimonialism um I, i think that this is something that is is very uh very familiar to us as well like um yeah it's it I, I think I'll, I'll hand it back to you at this point because there's a lot more to say about that. I don't want to go off too long, um, but I think Haller is, is somebody who is, um, is, is going to actually be very useful to us. I mean, he is, uh, Haller is something of a predecessor to what's now called Begriffsgeschichte, uh, conceptual history, by like people like, like I said, Reinhard Kozelik or Gerhard Osterreich. Yeah, the critique of Roman law is absolutely essential. I mean, there's a very powerful verse from chapter 7 of volume 1, which Kaposi himself quotes, and which I'm also going to quote because it really does encapsulate the entire critique. So let me go. So I'm quoting, Just as the citizens of Rome constitute the community, a citizenry, a genuine societas civilis, all other forms of human association and relations too had to be called societas civilis or civil societies. Soon, all forms of states, even principalities, had to be called civitates or respublicas. The aggregate of serviceable people was called populum liberum, a free people. Individual subjects who amongst themselves did not form any corporation and who are not in any particular way legally bound to one another, were now called civis, citizens. The estates and servicemen who were called into council and vassals were called comitia, popular assemblies, where the, as if the majority should carry the vote. Princely domains were called patrimonium populi, public or state domains, state property. The treasure of an individual lord became an, er- an erarium publicum, a public treasury. Private services owed to powerful and mighty lords were now called munera publica, public offices, etc. Thus, we gradually acquired the habit of expressing absolutely opposite ideas or relations in the same words, of confusing one with the other, and of drawing from it a host of erroneous conclusions. The corruption of language, the imperfection of signs, has always been and still is today the source of infinite errors. Instead of, ch- instead of changing the word to make it appropriate for the thing, the meaning of the improper word is used to designate it. Yeah, exactly. So that, and this is like, you know, basically, like not only is it incoherent uh, externally with the actual 
um, you know, the society to which it's being applied, but it was incoherent internally with uh, the Roman society itself. Yes. Um, where, where like the, the Roman, Roman law emperor, of, well, the Roman emperor himself like possessed like vast quantities of uh, what were called uh, fiscus Caesaris, you know, imperial estates, yeah. which coexisted alongside the Agir Publicus and the Erarium. So you had yeah, this completely usurped, like you said, Frankenstein nature of like a usurped monarchy with republican characteristics. Yeah, uh, and, usurped usurped republic with monarchical characteristics, which is right. And and even like the Praetorian law that they took it from that uh, you know that Rousseau and and C.A. and all all these um, thinkers took like the Praetorian law basically. That was a, a, a de-evolution from the Twelve Tables. Right. The Twelve Tables itself was a de-evolution from the primitive law. That was essentially private law. So, and this is another thing that I think, like when I was reading Haller, all these bells were going off, right? Like all these things that are, you know, we've all been talking about uh, for a long time. He's also talking about. And this is why I find him so interesting. Um, he, he, he's clearly very compatible with what we're talking about. So, you know, Haller is basically saying that like private law is the only law. And you know, I think of well, something that's, like that's uh, in the. the Natural and divine. So he would say natural, divine, and private, but they sort of blend together. They're I mean, almost yeah. the same, though, right? Like yeah. th these are almost synonymous in in, in his thinking. Yeah. Um, and 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 the idea of private law, especially private law as divine law, is is very very familiar to to uh, in in the primitive Indo-European acceptation of it, where um, what the Twelve Tables was it essentially was a um, it was a writing into public law what, what had before been private. So essentially what they're doing here uh, is a sort of primitive version of replacing divine right with the social contract or something like that. Um, so what, 12 tables, basically like before the 12 tables of Rome, th and this is, the, this is the earliest written law that we have from Rome, and it's already a departure from you know, what had been the case for thousands of years. So law before the Twelve Tables was private. It was a sacral formula that was known like only to the patriciate. Um, and then with the Twelve Tables, it becomes public, publicly known. It, uh, it starts out before as a revelation spoken in the name of the gods and all that. And then after the Twelve Tables, it becomes like a matter of popular will, like the decemvirs uh, receiving their powers from the people. Uh, the, the principle upon which law was based uh, primitively was piety. And then the principle after the Twelve Tables is the interest of men, right? Like, and there's, there's this, this very revealing – it's actually, I think, the last of the laws that we have that survive in the Twelve Tables. It says what the votes of the people have ordained in the last instance is the law, right? And, and like you can imagine like how destructive that would be. Basically, it's just like you know everything – like that happened five minutes ago is authoritative and what came before it isn't. Um, the 12 tables is it, it, like before that, the 12 tables, you have law as custom and then the 12 tables reduces it to a text. So anyway, I mean, it, you, you could go on and on about this, but basically um, what well, you can see this here, also, you can also see this in the word jurisdiction, like it's jurisdictio, like literally to speak of law or to speak yeah. of right. Or like actually in, in medieval Scandinavia, you had like a class of people who were literally called law speakers, 
whose entire job was to memorize and recite the oral customs. So like exactly. law, law, yeah. law speaker, literally jurisdiction, like it's the same thing. Yeah. So the idea is that Roman law, the Roman law that they were looking back to, is, is not even all that Roman. Like all right. Rome's legal foundations had been weakened by the time – certainly by the time of the Praetorian law in the empire, but even by the time of the Republic with the, the writing of the 12 tables, like the right of property, the right of succession, the absolute authority of the father, the relationship of agnation and all this stuff. This, this had already been like dealt a fatal blow. It was just kind of still staggering on even by the time of the 12 tables. So trying to reconstruct, you know, even just granting that there is this, um, you know, state of nature, uh, that is distinct from the state that we find ourselves in at the time of the French Revolution, trying to re reconstruct it on the basis of that language would be kind of like trying to reconstruct feudalism by like, you know, looking at Frederick the Great and going like, oh, he was basically a king. It's the same thing, right? It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't yeah, make any people, sense. Many people, many people in, in NRX do precisely that, though. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, so. this is why this stuff so is so important. Like, it's to revive people like Hauer, right? Because um, we we keep sort of making the same mistakes in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, he 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 links up a lot with some of what what has already been sort of current in our circles. And I think like you know, reviving him is is important work. I think there's also an interesting angle here where. Fahala state debt is a vehicle through which this terminological confusion of Roman law that is occurring at this time is infused into the patrimonial order and ruptures it in a sense. And so, you know, this detesting of the financial class is this like usurpatory sleight of hand that they've performed in a sense where the short-sightedness, the kings of Europe were, you know, felt obligated to enter into these financial relationships and to embrace this reconstruction of jurisprudential norms so that they could then facilitate the centralization of a state bureaucracy and ultimately enhanced military expenditure. And so you get this kind of juvenilian race to totalitarian centralization that gets set off here. You can see in Hala that he kind of identifies seemingly this this mechanism as the as where it all goes wrong, basically, that it kind of rips apart the patriarchal order. And then eventually you get the construction of the liberal subject and it's dead at that point as soon as you accept this notion. And we're kind of fucked from there. So I'm curious what you see like uh uh, Carl's bad. How do you see this being reconstructed? Because I mean, all of these relations are like completely destroyed. We live in this, you know, highly technological order now, where the ownership of lands is is hardly the center point of the state apparatus. Now it's all about the technological means of industrial production, and particularly like you know the force no, projection. No, we're not. We're not even at industrial production anymore. We've outgrown that too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, to an extent, I mean, of course, it's still important, but yeah, like but at the point now where, you know, I guess you could say um, whoever's the best at like psyoping, whoever's the most like elite, uh, you know, informational controllers, I guess you could say, like if you want to take the information age versus industrial age paradigm shift. But the point being, we're in this like radically different paradigm now of, of basically how, you know, superiority and inferiority actually is worked out. Um, so how do you see the application of these ideas? Um, because there's obviously something very based about you know, the patriarchal relation, and you can see in things like the state of gender relations today or the, the complete 
ideological retardation of the average person's mind when it comes to political concepts that we've lost so much. But what's the practicality of, of, of some of these ideas? Because they seem like, you know, otherworldly from a 21st century perspective. Well, they really are, uh, precisely because so much has been usurped. You said, I, I think that ownership of land is really as important as ever, but that this relation is fundamentally obscured by the fact that you, well, the state, of course, in the modern sense, it has like an absolute eminent domain as a kind of a sovereign corporation of the entire people. Because here's the, now, Haller, in my opinion, one of his most interesting volumes is actually the sixth one on republics, precisely because of how much he contrasts the pre-modern republic to the modern one, which, uh, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but we didn't record, so let me do it again. Uh, the republic, the one that Haller lived under, Baron, uh, Baron did not even use the term republic in its official correspondence until 1716. It used to call itself the city and community of Bern. Uh, and uh, the official name of the government was the Schutheisunterat der Stadt Bern, meaning literally the mayor and council of the city of Bern. Like this was the sovereign authority. The sovereignty in a republic does not lie in a territory or in a people. It lies in a corporation, in the, the actual like assembly the Supreme Council by which the independent corporation exercises a binding will that is the Republic and everything else, uh, all other territories, they're not, they're not part of the Republic, they're subject territories. Like you can say, for example, the USA to Puerto Rico or American Samoa or Baron used to own, for example, the territory of the vault in the Western speaking, the Western French speaking part of Switzerland, the Romandie. And, uh, you know, citizenship in the original sense means like an actual right to sit on the council. This, right. this, so is, this is like Roman republicanism, basically. Not not just Roman, but also like Swiss and Italian in the yeah. in the in the medieval sense. And in fact, it, in fact, it's very different from the Roman republicanism because there there is no concept of a, of a respublica really in like places like uh, Baron or Lucerne or like some of the Italian communes. Uh, it's it's a city, it's a corporate, it's a free city, but not a republic. So like it has that, it originates as a kind of colonial settlement, which is typically chartered by some, you know, prince or lord, or typically in Switzerland, most of these towns or, or boroughs or settlements, they would be under the jurisdiction of like a, a bishop or an abbot. And eventually these communities would go stronger and they would... Uh, they would either purchase their independence whenever the overlord went in to pay off the overlord's debt, you know, that so that way, you know, the over, overlord gives up his rights of jurisdiction to, in exchange for like uh, some kind of tribute, and thus the corporation gains independence and becomes a republic. Or through right of conquest, you know, ultimately, I mean, like, this, like, for example, in Switzerland, the wars against the Habsburgs, that's how they, most of these cities got their independence so you know in a in a modern republic we do this completely absurd thing where we have like a population of like millions of voters we divide these people into like electoral districts 
and single member constituencies. And these people then, and then we have political parties, factions who, who extract resources from other people's possessions, who serve vulgar particular interests, who go on these ostentatious political campaigning, getting off the vote, complete propaganda. And then the people who are divided into these artificial electoral districts and constituencies elect representatives. The thing about the pre-modern republic is there is no representation in the pre-modern republic. Like there is no like, like citizens do not vote representatives. Citizens are citizens. Citizens have power. If you can't, if you can't, uh, if you have no right to be elected for office or to sit on the council, you're not a citizen. Again, f fundamentally, citizenship is the the right to hold certain high offices of the state, of the corporation, and to sit on the council, or at least to spectate on the council. Obviously, like there's limitations on the quorum. But you know, today it's basically just a kind of it. Basically, means uh, some. Uh, inhabitant with certain constitutional rights which aren't well protected anyway so like they may as well be worthless scraps of paper and yeah this leads to this is completely completely ridiculous system of having like millions of citizens and parties and districts and uh, proportional representation or like first past the post because in the in the monarchical estates, for example, that the king would uh, convene from like his from the cities, from the bishops, the spiritual and temporal barons, his crown vassals, uh, people did not vote by head. They voted by order. Like the three estates, each estate, no matter how many people are a part of it, it only counts as one single vote, for example. That's how it worked originally. I mean, so you asked me about... Um, you know how in a modern state these kinds of relations were i mean fundamentally i don't, I don't even think the whole thing about gender relations that's, that's not even necessarily because of the uh it's not like republicanism or democracy has has to necessarily be less patriarchal in fact quite the contrary switzerland was the last european country to grant women's suffrage did you know that yeah and like uh, one of the cantons of like up until inner Hoden didn't start, uh, didn't give women the right to vote until like 91, like 25 years, 30 years ago. Post Giga Chad. And like a Athens, Athens, when when Cleisthenes made his democratic reforms of Athens, it became a much more militaristic state than it was before. I mean, fundamentally, uh, when any kind of like border skirmish becomes a matter of personal honor for every citizen that uh, that creates a much more um, in a way bellicose mentality than like a prince for whom like uh, you know his wars are are not national wars they're they're wars of his person not not of other people so like I don't I don't even think it's necessarily that the, the democracy or I mean liberalism kind of does yeah but like democracy in of itself that like it has to uh, like downplay these uh, natural the natural law of like uh, wife's submission to her husband that's more really the moral degeneration caused by the decline of of Christianity 
in my opinion. It's, 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 that's, that's a religious issue, not really a political. I mean, yes, of course, politics and religion are related, but, you know, a spiritual and temporal spheres are still distinct, you know. I mean, more this liberal conception of self-ownership, you know, this notion that the female is somehow some kind of legal individual. Obviously, this is a long process that takes many years, and there's other factors at play there is a certain interest, you know, oligarchic interest in the promotion of feminism in order to achieve certain specific political interests. But I guess like it's 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 related, I guess, to the larger question, which is, I mean, the the work of juvenile, the mechanisms that he sees at play here where you get this leveraging as soon as you open up this Republican model, you get this capacity to leverage the interests of certain demographics against others under the ideological pretext of, well, you know, we are all supposed to have some kind of fundamental equality as citizens of the Republic. And yet we can always note these natural inequalities, which can then be ideologically leveraged in order to centralize power. But the centralization of power also serves the secondary task, which is that it empowers ultimately you know, the states which centralize the most. This enables them to mobilize forces in ways that states which, which lack the same centralization can't quite handle to commandeer large empires and expand territories and, and even like the very act of the total war of the early 20th century and the developmental state of the 20th century where the entire bureaucracy and all the industry is integrated in, into the bureaucracy and essentially administered so as to basically direct all of the state's energy in, in this centralized fashion. Like how do you compete against this? Because the states which do have this intense centralization that integrate all of the productive capacity of the people into a national policy and that trample all over private property, individual rights, and so forth. They gain all of these benefits these uh, that make them competitive on like a geopolitical scale. I mean, do you see what Hal is proposing here as being something that could be configured in a competitive form to compete with this? Because it seems kind of uh, like a hard sell basically like, you know, okay, well, we've got this massive technological infrastructure that empowers our military, that empowers all of these different interests of states that are like, you know, like the United States government is this multi-trillion dollar per year entity that has millions and millions of agents and employees and all these different, you know, components. How do you then break that up and subordinate it ultimately to some kind of patrimonial state? I mean, it seems like a, a nightmare to even think about trying to, to sell that. Well, I mean, the American empire would would constitute in Haller's topology to be more like a military state, I guess. So and that because, you know, a military state is, has but fundamentally the main problem here is that uh, any kind of the state has no personality anymore. Like any kind of like notion of like personality has been completely erased from the state. So it's, it's entirely it's all abstraction and no concreteness, you know, like there's no. There's no actual, like, uh, let's say, the city and community of Washington that governs a large uh, t territorial possessions. It's like this uh, notion of, like, the, you know, the the United States as being, like, we the people, like some kind of, like, public sphere, which uh, is a kind of a, a void of emptiness, of nothingness. So... It, this has this has a very um, Hegelian aspect to it, of course, like the way Hegel wanted to like erase any kind of uh, actual personality of a state, any kind of uh, 
the state as being like an actual personal power of either a natural lord or a corporate or a collective lord, like a republic entirely in favor of, you know, like uh, rationality, the world spirit, the uh, the concrete intellect, the reconciliation of the universal and the particular, you know, these kinds of various uh, tenuous notions. I mean, as to like... Uh, First of all, I don't accept the fact that just because we have like massive uh, technological power that this necessarily determines us to like uh, declare that, uh, you know, I have uh, absolute sovereign power and I have uh, uh, this massive technological infrastructure at my disposal. Uh, therefore, you can't uh, spank your kid. Like one doesn't follow from the other at all. Like that, that's ultimately... That's ultimately a matter of what you, what your own doctrine is. If, if if you believe that you know like parental discipline of children is and the subordination of the wife to the husband is some kind of horrific violation of rights, this is ultimately this is a doctrinal issue. It's it's not, it really has nothing directly to do with the actual technological or economic infrastructure, like the actual economic base. You know, this is like a this you know people who try like many like Marxists who try to like reduce everything to material conditions or like the technological dynamics. No, ultimately the, the role of belief and faith is as paramount as ever. So like, even with these like massive technological states, uh, the fact that I can't, the fact that the parent, that the father can't spank his kid has nothing to do with the technology itself. It's because of the false doctrine that the people in power believe in. That's ultimately what it boils down to, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it, it depends kind of what you are asking, uh, what you're asking a, you know, uh, philosophical approach to statecraft to do, right? Like, um, it's obviously not going to provide a blueprint um, to the situation that we're in right now. But I think it does offer things that are corrosive to the uh, current political climate, right? Like, uh, one thing is that patrimonialism um, eliminates the abstract notion of the state, which is what we're what you were just saying there, basically. Like, by making the state into something concrete, uh, that is a family, uh, it minimizes some of the wrangling over the bullshit, like who the real people are, and all this stuff that basically opens up the juvenilian um, dynamic to just basically sort of eat away at the foundation of, of civil life. Um, so yeah, it kind of depends like what you're asking it to do, but it, it does have these like interesting. Uh, implications. I think the implications of the household as a political model are useful because basically, like you know, what what putting forth something like you know mainstreaming Haller, if, if if we could imagine that like we're we're doing that, like Imperium Press is this, you know, a continent. Well, Hopper Hoppe, Hoppe is uh, also going to be giving whatever. a speech on Haller on September 16th. So like, oh, uh, really. Yeah, yeah, like in like a few more weeks. So like I expect that uh, you know hopefully that'll give lots of traffic to both you and you and I. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> there you go. But I could see why Hoppe like actually um, why he appreciates Haller because oh, like, the, uh, the his um, yeah. you know Haller's notion of the household as, as a political model it, it it matches up hip and thigh right. Subsidiarity is natural to it. Like um, uh, well, it's funny. It's funny you. Mention subsidiarity because I mean Haller is basically the 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 doctrine of subsidiarity in Catholic social teaching 
basically comes from Haller. I mean, this really hasn't been analyzed by mainstream scholars, but like hmm. the two most famous advocates of uh, social justice in the Catholic tradition, Luigi Tapparelli and Antonio Rosmini, were both, it's known on record, that they were heavily influenced by Haller. Like Tapparelli even like straight up says in his book on uh, natural law that uh, his doctrine is only a clarification of Haller's. He flat out right. says that. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So I, th- I think these things are like, you know, he does have critiques um, of the, the, the notion of the liberal state that, that are useful. So like with subsidiarity, I, I mean, obviously the idea of the, the state as an extended household, it, it, it can only really work so far at a certain scale. So it breaks up into smaller units as it grows, um, which is, I guess, in some way that's a little bit different from Filmer. Um, and also, I think that it wouldn't be too hard to sort of push that a step further and say that uh, these households uh, or these extended family units, they work best when they're united by ties that are organic and concrete, like you know, ties of blood or something, where you could say that propositional ties are something that are quite weak and it, it doesn't really um, – you know, if this was an idea that was to be accepted sort of mainstream uh, or even more mainstream, even even just like in, in uh, you know, say like dissident right wing circles, if this was something everyone was on the same page about, that that would that would actually be quite corrosive to liberalism. And he's also got an interesting <laughs> I love this. I, I laughed out loud when I read this uh, because I think this is just so subversive. The idea that equality is a, is the source of unrest. Uh, is just funny to me, like, but it's true. Um, so basically, what he's saying here uh, is that like nobody tolerates being ruled by an equal. So yeah. like jealousy and glory seeking, these are these are manifestations. You know, basically like you know, look at 2020 right there. That is the manifestation of a society of equals, supposedly. Like, you know, supposed equals because obviously people are not equal. And societies founded on hierarchy, on the other hand, like these, they they enjoy peace between unequals, right? Like this is funny yeah. to us because it's just so so like way off the map from uh, you know you know what we're we're sort of taught to we grow up with. But I mean, yeah, it, it makes sense, right? Like between unequals, you get the sort of admiration of the naturally superior, and you get the kind of like fatherly affection that that someone uh, would. Um, feel towards an inferior that like you know i mean this the strong are naturally magnanimous toward the weak right like he, the the example was given in that Kaposi article of like who wants to hurt a baby right like or or who's the Abor- abortion abortion score in power well, but not, yeah but not but not a christian monarch yeah 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 exactly but it's just a natural thing right like this is the way that people naturally are when left to their own devices and they're not like you know bearing up under the like weight of of tons of ideological propaganda and you know uh, it, it sort of brings back an idea that i think really really needs to be uh talked about in dissident right circles and that is the idea of noblesse oblige um because you know we're obviously you know if if you consider us in the dissident right then this is a big enough tent where there are there are aspects or you know sides of the, the movement where they they don't believe anything at all in in the idea of nobility right uh, and and that this this is something that is completely counter to w- 
what we're about. But I think that noblesse oblige is is one of the things that really needs to be re- revived. Like, who who's a wiser custodian of property? Is it is it somebody that is um, naturally superior, or is it somebody that's you know on the dole, right? I'd actually, uh, I'd actually I'd like to quote Haller from chapter thirteen on this very subject just quickly. Go right ahead. What a fearful, weak, and suspicious man was Robespierre in his national convention. What a frail base he was standing on. Everything frightened him. He had no time to think of anything other than his own self-preservation. This is why almost all great oppressive measures amount to arbitrary taxes and forced conscription. The princes sometimes need money and troops. Then it is they who are weak or destitute. However, depending on whether they seek to satisfy these needs by the goodwill of their subjects or by violence, they themselves must make disadvantageous conventions or concessions. That is to say, they must become dependent in certain respects, or they must become tyrants. Excused by necessity, they say in such cases, but what is necessity if not a lack of power and need? Quote, end quote. Yeah, so I mean, like, if you are, um, you know, say, you know, somebody that is like just naturally you know, the kind of person that could build a company and run it and make it successful. Um, But you are, you know, you're insecure in your power. Basically, it's like the state could take away, take it away from you at any time, or, you know, you're sort of subject to all these, you know, just look at the like sort of miscreants that have been deputized to like destroy people's property throughout 2020 and everything like that. You know, basically what I'm saying is that when the the superior man is insecure, he's going to uh, his the uh, natural benevolence that this person would feel is going to dry up. And this is a point I think that Howler makes, and that it's something that is um, very interesting, and that that we need but, to sort uh, of talk about. It's- it's very important to point out one very important qualification that this about the natural, the naturally ennobling nature of power. It only applies to personal power that one holds by his own right. It does not apply to delegated power because you see, for example, people like Moldbug made this like massive mistake where they were like that, uh, you know, back in the days of unqualified reservation. And even now, like he says that. Uh, you know, if only that the reason why the left is so like tyrannical and diabolical is because they have to share power with the outer party, the Republicans, and they're constantly because of this insecurity of power, they have to constantly, you know, attack, uh, the, you know, attack other people, you know, attack fathers of families, you know, trans rights, whatever. Therefore. If only we concentrate power into these, give the leftists absolute power, they're, you know, everything's going to be okay. They're going to start planning for long-term horizons. And now that they have power, they're automatically going to be responsible as well. But that's total bullshit and we know it. Like most of us got that wrong because, because that's not how it works. Like the pow- yes, power can be naturally ennobling, but it has to be your own power, not power that you, that is like conferred by someone else's office. That's a very – because the power of a king is something that he built through like literally centuries of like conquest and acquisition. It's not like right. something that oh we just appoint a dictator and all end of story like no, but right. it has a lot to be of like the, organic power. But a, 
but a lot of the NRX people they get this completely wrong, and Mo- and Moldbuck like got this just screwed up this question very badly, and yet people still listen to him. But hey, whatever. It's one thing you can see. I mean, not that these guys are perfect, but if you look at the Chinese, if you look at the rise of Xi Jinping, he had to beast mode a whole a series of lower ranking positions and outcompete his contemporaries. At various, yeah, like a cursus honorum in the Roman sense, yeah. Yeah, a various strata of, and, and this is why the Chinese model, when you stack it up against the American model, it, it's seemingly doing things that you know that look comparatively positive because you have this natural power in its leadership because it has this meritocratic process of controlled competition. But what you said about the distinction between looking at statecraft through this geopolitical material analysis lens. I'd like to touch on that again, because I think it's an interesting question to go a little bit deeper into, maybe to close this out, because looking at Haller's position from what I can gather so far, just looking at it on its face, from an aesthetic point of view, it's beautiful. Like, I love it. Yes, like this is glorious. The question to me is, how do you bring something down from this aesthetic ideal into pragmatic actualization? And maybe in our personal lives, this can be more easily understood. But in the, the world of the political, it's a world of strategic calculation. It's a world of using models of a strategic analysis like geopolitics, like political economy and so forth. The people who have power in the system who are making moves are ultimately making these strategic calculations. So there has to be a respect of this. It doesn't have to be done in this reductionist Marxist way where you just give your economic analysis and then reduce everything in the culture to this. Instead, you can look at it in another sense of practical limits of strategic possibility within the provision of state. You can see the United States and the American elite, um, yes, they're, they're very like ideologically degenerate, spiritually degenerate people, but also you can see their ideology as a sabotage of potential competitors. And this deal they make with, okay, you want a protection of the American empire, you have to sabotage your people with this retarded ideology as well. The vulgar version of conceiving of this is like the bio-Leninist, the meme, the bureaucracy will elevate protected classes, so to speak, into positions of power in order to fill the bureaucracy with dependence upon the ideology. And so the ideology can sustain itself through this dependency. So I guess the question is how you break that. How do you build a political order, which is basically what it seems like the complete antithesis of this patrimonial conception where dependency is based upon superiority. It's very straight up as opposed to this backhanded, I'm going to elevate you into a position of power because of your weakness. And therefore I can, I can, I can trust you for this reason. Oh, if I knew the answer to that question, I wouldn't be on this podcast. I'd be out doing it. (laughs) I mean, that's really all I can tell you. (laughs) Like, uh, (laughs) I'm, I'm not a, I'm not an activist of any kind, man. I mean, ultimately, I mean, we, we've had these discussions in private before, but like I'm, what I do is effectively, it's a literary endeavor. Like I have no pretensions about the fact that I'm going to like make some kind of political impact or like reform politics or anything like that. To me, this is just my own kind of a private intellectual interest. I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't take uh, politics as something that belongs as like my own domain or something that I, as if I take seriously, as if I have some kind of actual personal power in a political, which I do not, only formally as, as being a citizen, but as an actual personal power over politics, I don't have anything like that. Which is also why I, I take Twitter as this like very, uh, you know, laid back thing. Like I, I dunk on and make fun of everybody because to me this isn't, to me this is not serious. 
Well, for, for me, it's not. And I know, like, for many of you guys, uh, you know, you you do want a genuine answer as to how do we get out of this mess, but I'm afraid I cannot give you that answer. It, it is not up to my power. That's all I can tell you. Well, my view is that, uh, I mean, fair enough, that's your personal attitude, but my view is that, number one, it's more fun to LARP, and number two, um, like, if you read, you know, uh, Vladimir Lenin, his early works, or, like, like basically reports of people interacting with him, you know, years, like, decade, over a decade before the revolution, um, you look at, uh, you know, the you know, the beginning of, of uh, I don't want to say the name of this book, actually, because this is going on YouTube, but um, Uncle Adolf's book, you know, they're basically five guys sitting in a in a pub and just sitting around drinking beers, but taking their, their debates uh, while sitting around, you know, uh, smashing steins very seriously. And only because they took it so seriously did they develop a formal organization that ultimately had any kind of impact on world history and the same with Lenin they took the the inception of um you know uh of their journal and their communist musings very seriously and ultimately when the revolution came the organization of the Bolsheviks uh, was just superior to any of the alternatives at the time and this enabled them to um you know be there when the moment mattered so in a way it's not so much just saying like you personally or me personally are going to become some political leader one day but just simply that this discourse uh i feel like we should consider it as though it was we're preparing like a, like a blunt weapon like as if we're kind of uh lodging excalibur in the rock so to speak and, and you know so that one day if king david does exist he's got something to pull out um one problem is that uh the two examples you mentioned, well, they also took place in the context of like a massive reparations crisis, occupations by the French to, in the in like the the Ruhr, and also of course world wars. We the big problem is that we don't really have we don't really actually have a major genuine crisis event. We have basically what we do have is we have a long series of these completely fake artificial manufactured <laughs> crises. But we don't actually have the real thing. And so because the, the real thing isn't there, there isn't the opportunity to exploit it either. That's kind of the problem. No, I say this, I say this big time because when, uh, particularly if you look at the Germans, the Germans are under intense geopolitical stress because, you know, they're kind of surrounded by empires of, you know, various flavors that present various dangers and so they're under this stress to develop this immunological response to this to defend themselves existentially from these threats and so this induces a certain mentality in the german a very different attitude to modernity than you know the french or the british if you know failing some kind of like existential stress like this being placed on a political order you're not going to see the necessary radicality or complexity it is kind of sad that the position seems so bleak, but, you know, history isn't something that we can determine in advance. So if an opportunity does arise, like I'd rather like behave as though possibly an opportunity would exist. The ideal scenario, if it did happen, I would rather try and contribute to assisting its actualization than, you know, just take the black pill and, and then not that you're not doing anything because you are making a contribution regardless, but as like a pervasive attitude, I feel like uh, you can't control all these historical events, but, you know, 
if there was some kind of reaction that was possible, it would be a shame if the people who could have uh, done what they could to help prepare for that moment didn't. So all you can do is take responsibility as an individual for your whatever you can personally contribute to that. And he saith unto them, why are, ye fe- why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Matthew chapter six, verse, Matthew chapter eight, verse twenty-six. There is going to be an opportunity, if we Definitely. believe. Yeah. We don't, we don't know when is, we don't know when is it going to be, but there will be. So just stay tight. That's all yeah, I can from, say. From from a Christian perspective, from um, a from a pagan if... perspective, fortune favors the bold.